Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine's monthly podcast, bringing you news highlights and topical debate. This podcast is sponsored by Dragos, an industrial cybersecurity company on a mission to safeguard civilization from those trying to disrupt the industrial infrastructure we depend on every day. Hello and welcome to the March edition of the Into Security podcast, sponsored by Dragos. I'm your host, Eleanor Dalloway, Editorial Director at Info Security Magazine. And as always, I'm joined by Deputy Editor Benjamin David and our reporter, James Coker. So how are you two? And I'm guessing the answer is going to be very busy, um, given we have our online summit opening its virtual doors tomorrow. Exactly, very busy indeed. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, and same with both of you, sort of very busy preparing for the online summit, which should be which should be a great event as always. Um also very achy from a from a half marathon I did over the weekend. So that's kind of my main feelings at the moment. Yeah, we were saying in our team meeting earlier that James is just his pure purpose at the moment seems to be to make us feel like underachievers when we're not clocking up the miles or the, all these steps every weekend <laughs> as he's practicing for his marathon. Mm-hmm. How many weeks left to go, James? Uh, under two now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be Sunday, the 3rd of March. So I'm um, sorry, 3rd of April. So, uh, yes, yeah, com- coming up scarily quickly now. Oh my goodness. And then hopefully you can join us couch potatoes back on the uh, the sofa once all that's done. <laughs> jo, I'm I'm looking forward to just not yeah, not not having to force myself out to to run in especially in uh, in all the those winter months a few months ago. Yeah, that'll be very nice. I used to our movie marathons, James. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, that'll be that'll be my uh, my main marathon going forward, I think. We never know, I might catch the bug and sign up for another one <laughs> I think that's my kind of marathon uh, a movie marathon or a sitcom <laughs> marathon for sure <laughs> um, probably sensible yeah, yeah, we did actually reference the online summit, um, which we will put in the meeting notes for this podcast. We will put links to online summit because it will be going on demand. When this podcast goes out, it will be available on demand so you can catch up with any sessions that you missed. Our last episode was on dating scams. Um, that was in honour of February 14th, Valentine's Day. And so much has happened and played out since then, much of which has been utterly heartbreaking. It's hard to find the words to adequately condemn the conflict and the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. It's utterly devastating and our thoughts and our hearts go out to everyone affected. As events have unfolded in recent weeks, implications on the cyber industry have started to unravel. We have found at Info Security Magazine our newsfeed entirely dominated by related news. The reality of the cyber implications today have perhaps been less extreme than some predicted or anticipated. And I think it's easy, although certainly not advisable, for people to overestimate or blow out of proportion the cyber element of this crisis. Some of the industry has rushed to condemn the vendors who have tried to capitalise on the tragedy by plugging their solutions. And I say solution, of course, in single quotation marks. There's also been criticism of the overinflation of the cyber issue, something that is deemed insensitive given the bloodshed and the lives lost in the physical war. The Info Security Magazine were committed 
to reporting on Russia-Ukraine without sensationalism and by reporting simply the facts. This is a commitment not unique to this situation. We make this commitment every day, day in, day out on all of our content. But I do think it's worth reiterating that given everything going on. So today's news roundup will be focused on four of our biggest Russia-Ukraine stories. Ben and James are going to talk you through those. We're then going to welcome Dragos's VP of Threat Intelligence, Sergio Caltagirone, to the podcast. He and I discuss the political, the geopolitical situation and the crisis in Ukraine and what impact that's having on industrial infrastructure threats. More widely, though, Sergio also gives us great insight into the hot of the press reports on European industrial infrastructure cyber threats. He's ridiculously knowledgeable and very charismatic to add. So it's a real treat to have him on the pod today. I've had enough of the sound of my own voice, so I can't imagine how you all feel. So I'm going to hand over now to James. Um, and the first story we're going to cover today garnered an enormous amount of traffic. It was written by yourself, JC. It's anonymous hacking group declares cyber war against Russia. Uh, that's right, Eleanor. Yeah. So, uh, so our most read story relating to the Russia-Ukraine conflict so far surrounds an interesting trend that we've seen emerge in regard to the cyber, ele cyber element of the war. So this is really that cybercrime groups, individual hackers and hacktivist groups have become heavily involved, almost picking sides and, and really targeting the other side. Um, so this particular story covered the announcement by the hacktivist group Anonymous that they had declared a cyber war against the Kremlin following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Anonymous is well known uh, in the cyber world for targeting numerous entities for actions and policies they disagree with over recent years. So these have ranged from government agencies to notorious political groups such as the KKK. And Anonymous made its declaration on the same day that Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, which was back on the 24th of February, which feels like a very long time ago now. Uh, so this was made on one of the group's various Twitter accounts, which stated the anonymous collective is officially in cyber war against the Russian government. Hashtag anonymous, hashtag Ukraine. And the group has really been true to its word and it claimed responsibility for taking down a number of higher profile websites related to the, the Russian state shortly after its declaration. This included the website of the state Duma and the Russian state controlled international television network RT. And it's since continued in this vein, uh, for example, apparently disrupting the operations of various high profile Russian agencies. This includes breaching the database of the Russian federal agency responsible for the supervision of communications, information technology and mass media. And they claim to have leaked over 360,000 files in the process. So the role of individual hackers and hacker collectives in this war is is an interesting trend and something that really needs to be analyzed and watched carefully as there's obviously a lot of considerations and potential dangers around individual hackers and, and groups sort of taking it upon themselves to to launch cyber attacks against nation states and even though that there, there may there'll be a lot of people who kind of support the uh, the actions of anonymous in this in this respect there's still uh, a lot of potential in issues that this could raise yeah, thanks, James. The, the story brought in record-breaking views, actually, so it's definitely a story that resonated very well with our audience. Now, over to Ben with the story, Russia denies satellite hacking and warns of wider war. 
Thank you, Eleanor. Yeah, so as tensions with the West rise over its invasion of Ukraine, Russia warned that any cyber attack on its satellite systems will be treated as an act of war. Now, the head of the country's Roscosmos Space Agency, Dmitry Rogozin, issued the warning on the 2nd of March on a Russian TV channel, according to the country's news agency, Interfax. Now, he warned that everyone or anyone who tries to attack its satellite systems would be essentially committing a crime, which, which should be toughly punished. Quoting him, of course, he continued pointing out that disabling the satellite group of any country is generally a casus belli, that is, a reason to go to war. He added, we will be looking for those who organised it. We will send all the necessary materials to the Federal Security Service, the Investigative Committee and the Prosecutor General's Office for relevant criminal cases to be opened. Now, at the same time, Rogozin reportedly denied reports that Roscosmos satellite control centers had been hacked. Online collective Anonymous, which launched a campaign against the uh, Kremlin in retaliation for its invasion, claimed early March to have done exactly that. Now, they said the Russian space agency sure does love their satellite imaging. Better yet, they sure do love their vehicle monitoring system. The WSO2 was deleted, credentials were rotated, and the server is shut down. Have a nice Monday fixing your spying tech. Glory to Ukraine. Thank you, Ben. So next we're going to look at another big story, and that was Eugene Kaspersky weighing in on the Russia-Ukraine crisis in a way that sparked a hell of a lot of backlash from the industry. I watched this in, unfold in real time, and like many in the industry, I personally felt the need to say something about his statement. James, tell us some more. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think this was second place in terms of um, readership of, of our news coverage related to the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So the statement was made by Eugene Kaspersky, the well-known cybersecurity industry veteran and CEO of the Russian headquarters IT security vendor of the same name. Um, so at the start of March, so quite near the start of the conflict, Eugene Kaspersky issued the following tweet on his account, which stated, we welcome the start of negotiations to resolve the current situation in Ukraine and hope that they will lead to a cessation of hostilities and a compromise. We believe that peaceful dialogue is the only possible instrument for resolving conflicts. War isn't good for anyone. Um, so this was a reference to ongoing peace talks between Ukrainian and, and Russian officials. Kaspersky followed up his statement with another tweet, which stated, like the rest of the world, we are in shock regarding re the recent events. The main thing we can do in this situation is provide uninterrupted functioning of our products and services globally. The wording of this statement, such as describing the conflict as a, as a situation and kind of using the opportunity to mention Kaspersky's products and, and services, as Eleanor said, really generated a, quite an angry response from, from a number of high profile figures 
uh, from within the cybersecurity industry. So, for example, um, Rick Ferguson, who's VP of Security Research at Trend Micro, tweeted, better to have stayed silent than to have called an invasion a situation that requires a compromise or to assert that it isn't good for anyone. Russians are not being murdered. Brian Honan, who's CEO at BH Consulting, also spoke out about Kaspersky's neutral choice of language and his refusal to outrightly condemn the actions of the Kremlin. Uh, he, he wrote, Eugene, there is no current situation in Ukraine. It is an invasion leading to a war in which innocents are being killed by Russian soldiers. Russia needs to stop its war and leave Ukraine to the Ukrainian people and hashtag stand with Ukraine. Uh, and a similar sentiment was also expressed by Regina Blumen, who is security analyst at Algolia. She wrote, this is not the statement you think it is. There's no room to compromise in an invasion. Um, so obviously this is a, it's a difficult issue for, for countries to, to navigate in general. And obviously Kaspersky being a, a Russian-based organisation sort of adds to that, that issue. But yeah, it really demonstrates the the difficulties of companies remaining neutral on, on many geopolitical issues in the modern era with, with social media and, and things like that. And in particular, this one, which is which is causing so much suffering and devastation. Yeah, and there, there were literally hundreds of responses to Eugene's tweet. And I, I took the time to sort of scroll through all of them. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people and a certain feeling of unification in the industry speaking out against that statement. Really interesting. And like you say, James, that resonated again with our audience. Okay, so let's take a look at the final story, um, which is Moscow Exchange downed by cyber attack. Back over to you, please, Benjamin. Thank you, Eleanor. Yeah, so the website for the Moscow Stock Exchange was offline and inaccessible on Monday, the 28th of February. Now, a crowd, a crowdsourced community of hackers endorsed by uh, Kyiv officials claimed responsibility for the outage. The Ukraine IT army posted a message on Telegram that it had taken just five minutes to render the site inaccessible. Additionally, a spokesperson for global internet connectivity tracking company Netblocks told Forbes that, quote, we can confirm the Moscow Exchange website is down, but we don't have visibility into the incident's root cause or the extent of the disruption. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, Mykhailo Fedorov, announced the formation of the IT army on Twitter the week prior and published a link to a list of prominent Russian websites for the hackers to target. On the hit list were the websites of 31 Russian businesses and state organizations, including those of energy company Gazprom, oil producer Lukoil, three banks and several government websites. Following the IT army's Telegram post, Fedorov posted the following message on social media. The mission has been accomplished. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. And a thanks to both of you for sharing those top stories with us today. So without further ado, I'd really like to press play on the Sergio Caltagirone interview. And all I can say is I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, 
I'm welcoming Jay Goss's VP of Threat Intelligence, Sergio Calter Girone, to the podcast today. He's here to talk about Dragos's brand new European Industrial Infrastructure Cyber Threat Perspective Report. It's hot off the press, so we're lucky to have Sergio here today to talk about some of the highlights or lowlights, depending on how you look at it. So Sergio, welcome and thanks for being on the pod today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Eleanor. So in this European Industrial Infrastructure Cyber Threat Perspective Report, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Dragos yes. claims um, with, and I quote, high confidence that adversaries pose a threat to European industrial infrastructure over the next year. So can you give me an overview of the reasons that are contributing to that claim? Of course, yes. It's a, it is a great question. Um, so we're seeing both significant events in uh, uh, targeted threat activity. Um, so for instance, uh, this last week, we've seen some pretty significant activity by a group we call Camasite. Um, and they've released some new malware uh, that, uh, or they updated, I should say, their malware again, um, that is uh, focused on access to home routers and small home office devices. Now, what's interesting, you're like, well, what does that have to do anything with industrial, Sergio? And the answer is that they um, they use that capability to as as a as a relay um, to communicate with their infected and uh, exploited victims. And in this case, we see exploitation and impl and implantation by this group uh, in electric, in oil and gas, and other industrial sectors in Europe, in the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. Um, and so we, you know, particularly. Um, these targeted threats are of very high interest to us, uh, as well as the industrial sector. In addition to that, we also see a continued high impact of ransomware, um, particularly across the manufacturing sectors in Europe. And you mentioned in, in your first part of the answer about them being highly targeted and sort of an increase in that. When you say highly targeted, are you referring to targeting countries, sectors, devices, organizations, individuals? What do you mean? Yeah, a great question. Um, so what I mean is that they have a, uh, they're targeting based on some knowledge or, or interest of the victim in particular that they are going after. So Camasite is using this particular malware as, uh, and again, this just, I'm speaking to this because it just happened last week. Uh, um, and it's that we have uh, this malware that is targeting actually, like I said, home and small office devices, but they're using that as the relay to um, to conduct their operations into much larger organizations. And by targeted, I mean that their final organizations, the ones that they're really after, they, they have a particular list, it seems like, or they're highly discretionary in what they're going after and the time that they spend. So uh, again, a targeted for us means discretionary versus like non-discretionary. Um, so for that instance, they know who they're going after, why they're going after them. They will craft particular, you know, attacks and, um, uh, and messages messages just to enter those organizations um, that they're particularly interested in. Okay, sure. And you mentioned ransomware. I mean, we always joke on this podcast because we cannot record a single podcast, it seems, without talking about oh, yeah. ransomware. Do you ever see this sort of threat, the trend of ransomware reversing? Are we ever going to start seeing it fading away or is it just going to continue upwards? Uh, that is a wonderful question, actually. I've never been asked that question. Um, 
The answer to that is, of course, um, just like you, Eleanor, your crystal ball is as good as mine, which is not good <laughs> at all. Um, nobody's got a crystal ball for the future. So uh, please take whatever I say that is future looking uh, with a grain of salt. None of us, none of us can do that well, no matter how good your intel is. So um, my it. perspective, yeah, so my perspective, I, I, I just, I really don't, most, most people are like, what's going on in the future? I'm like, I wish I knew that too. Um, could you give me the, could you give me the lotto numbers while you're answering that question? Um, so really the answer is, I believe that ransomware is, is seeing its peak. Um, and, and the reason I see that is that it doesn't really have much more to do. Like it, it's already impacting so many, what, you know, such a high percentage of organizations, such a high percentage of individual users in the world. And then I, I think it's it's achieved market saturation, if you want to use those terms. Um, I think the number of adversaries is very high. Um, I think that, that, you know, we've already seen uh, major ransomware groups collapse, um, both under their own pressure as well as law enforcement pressure. Um, so I think we're kind of seeing its zenith uh, at the moment. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to get better in the near term. Um, I don't believe so. I think it's going to continue to stay bad for quite a while. But I do know that the number of very large critical companies in the cybersecurity space and the technology space working on counter ransomware issues plus a focus being placed on this issue by law enforcement worldwide is going to cause eventually a decrease in this threat, like every cyber threat has seen a coming and going, right? We would have said the same thing if you had interviewed me back in 2000 and 2021, you would have said, Sergio, when are these computer worms going to stop? Um, and I would have said, probably not right away, but they will eventually. And I think the same thing we can say with ransomware is the pressure is increasing on them, both, again, market pressure, as well as law enforcement and technological pressure. Um, I do think that we are going to see, I think we are at the zenith of this issue. That was such a rollercoaster of an answer. It started <laughs> off like really negative, um, really positive, then it went a bit negative, then it got positive again. <laughs> and I was so filled with hope and then dismay and then hope again. <laughs> oh, wow. And see, look at this. I'm giving you a ride at the same time as a podcast. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. <so. laughs> Absolutely. Now, on the topic of ransomware, so the report specifically states that both private and public European industrial entities and small and medium-sized manufacturing firms face a threat from ransomware operators particularly. So who is at the highest risk and, and why? Oh, that, that is another fantastic question. So primarily the, 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 the sector at the greatest risk of ransomware right now is manufacturing and food and beverage. Um, those are the two that we, uh, that, that we see the largest number um, if we just if we just count numbers, it's the largest number of impact that we see. And we do. We count uh, ran we count ransomware events. And the reason we count them is because we have visibility at Dragos into the ransomware operators themselves, not necessarily the people, but into what's what what are they doing on a daily basis? Who are they impacting? How are they impacting them? How much are they charging people? Are people paying ransoms? we We see a lot of that data. And so we can say with 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 strong certainty that that it is food and beverage and manufacturing. Um, that are the two most uh, impacted um, sectors right now. Now, the good news about that, honestly, is that w is that of those, over fifty one percent of the um, of ransomware attacks in the industrial sector are, are only caused by two groups. Ponty and Lockbit. So while people talk very broadly about ransomware, when you look inside the actual ransomware operations, you'll notice that 
again, 51% of them are uh, of these attacks in the industrial sector are only caused by two ransomware groups, um, which is great for defenders, which means that if you just defend against Lockbit and Conti, you are going to be, you know, fairly, you know, you're going to be strongly protected compared mm. to having to protect against the Un unfortunately, hundreds of other ransomware families and groups that are out there. Um, so that's a good news for defenders is that, hey, there is some of this that is, you know, tractable and, and um, approachable. Interesting. Interesting. And food. Why food? Why food as an industry? Um, that, is, that is a great question. And it comes to that, you know, at Dragos, not only do we monitor intelligence, we produce intelligence, we gather intelligence. Um, we also have a platform that gives us intelligence. But the other is, and the whole reason for this is for me to explain where we're getting this data. Um, mm -hmm. And the last is we, we show up on site to hundreds of companies, industrial, again, we focus only on industrial. So on industrial manufacturing and energy and oil and gas, we show up to hundreds of these sites a year that are having problems. And so we get a good number, a good set of statistics on who is being affected and why. And I can tell you that um, in last year, 100% of our food and beverage, 100% um, of our food and beverage clients have been directly connected to the internet. Um, and so that's not a good number when it comes to protecting yourself against, of course, internet facing threats. Um, and so from that perspective, one of our biggest issues we see is, is remote access and third-party access into these environments. People bringing ransomware in um, or providing such an open door that they allow it into their organization inadvertently. Yeah, and that does remind me of the, the story that broke, I think it was last June, about um, JBS, the meat processing yes. giant mm -hmm. as well. That was a, that was a big story. Um, it would be absurd and utterly remiss of me when talking about European cyber threats to ignore the current deplorable crisis in the Ukraine and the impact that that's having on industrial infrastructure threats. So does the report pull up anything sort of specifically in relation to the current crisis? Yeah, um, so you're absolutely right. I mean, even the word deplorable is, I would I would argue, not strong enough to to describe what you know, the, the, the absolutely humanity, you know, the absolute loss of of life and, and horrid humanitarian cost that that this war is causing. Um, so from that perspective, the answer is that right as of right now, um, as of the time I'm speaking to you, there is nothing. There is no quote-unquote smoking gun here on the cyber side, um, and and, and I, I'm going to use some terrible wording here. But the reason for it is that bullets are stronger than packets, mm -hmm. um, and usually when bullets are actually flying, we don't see a lot of cyber activity. Um, people, you know, people associate war and cyber war, and you know, people use these terms back and forth, but it's not like that. Um, I, I was both a defensive and offensive operator in my career, um, and I can tell you it's not what people think it is. Uh, cyber is usually either before or after. It usually isn't during the, the shooting. The sh during the shooting, bombs and bullets are unfortunately the things that, that are the only thing anyone really cares about. Um, and so the answer is we're not seeing a lot of cyber activity right now with regards to the, the envelope of this current conflict and war. Um, now, the challenge we have, though, is that we don't know what's going to happen. And I think the challenge is that for, unfortunately, for everybody, civilians and world leaders alike, not many people do know what's happening, what's going to happen here. Um, and I think that is the biggest fear and risk driving all of this. And I would argue that that continues to be the biggest issue. 
So for European customers, and this is something Dragos is working on particularly, what we're most concerned about is what we would call spillover effects. Um, and we've seen a little bit of that happening. Of course, the attack against Viasat just a couple of weeks ago um, showed that, you know, a, an infrastructure attack, whether it was targeted a particular element or, or, or not, can have a very wide ranging effect um, against civilian infrastructure in, in all sectors. And so from that perspective, that's what we're most concerned about right now is that we do believe that right now the conflict is fairly narrowly scoped. And for that, we are both uh, unfortunately saddened and grateful. Um, but we don't know if that's going to necessarily be true. And in addition to that, um, what we are concerned about and we have seen before is attacks against um, uh, against, so say, want, the WannaCry um, attacks uh, and others are that, you know, if if they do particularly target like Ukrainian infrastructure, of course, Ukrainian infrastructure is interdependent and interlinked with European infrastructure in many ways. Um, and that interdependence and interlink could cause easily cause spillover into European infrastructure. And that for one is actually what we are most concerned about. And the thing that we are counseling most of our European customers on is the biggest issue right now is an inadvertent targeting of your organizations because of spillover. And for those to look most deeply into any interconnections that they have with not only Ukraine, but broader Eastern Europe uh, entities as well. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a really balanced, well thought through, non-sensationist answer. Um, really appreciate that. So moving on, um, the report identifies 10 activity groups most active in Europe. Um, you've mentioned a couple already in this podcast, actually, and really interesting point on how just a couple were responsible for a huge percentage of some of those ransomware attacks. But are there any particular activity groups that are notable or worth mentioning or pulling out in particular? Yeah, I would say that the ones that we're most concerned about right now uh, is a group that we call Xenotime. And Xenotime, uh, Xenotime or Xenotime, um, depends how you want to pronounce the X in the front. Um, it is a, um, uh, it's a challenging group because they are directly responsible for the safety, um, the safety incident that occurred in Saudi Arabia in 2017 at an oil and gas refinery. They have and we and and they are continuing to develop capabilities to destroy industrial infrastructure. And I don't say that lightly. I, I I'm not one that believes in in you know growing a threat bigger than it needs to be. But that is one that is absolutely one of the most it, we call it the most dangerous cyber threat in the world for a reason. Um, and they are continuing to develop capabilities to destroy critical infrastructure. Um, and we do believe that they that that you know that if necessary they will they will deploy against Europe and others just as they have um, in Saudi Arabia. But we also know that they are directly they have been directly targeting the United Kingdom, um, other other countries in Europe, um, as well as Australia and the United States. Uh, so we do know that they do have interest in operations globally, again, including uh, Europe. Um, and we do know, and we do also know, we do know that they have, and we also know that they continue to develop the some of the most dangerous cyber threat in the entire world. Um, so I think from our perspective, they're the number one. Now, if I had to say number two, it would probably be Parasite. Um, now, Parasite is a group um, 
that is really focused on remote access capabilities, particularly in the oil and gas and aerospace uh, industries. And so there, they're really focused on gaining remote access through uh, controlled um, through controlled external interfaces like virtual private networks, VPNs, and so forth. Um, and so from a remote access perspective, they're a group that we're one of the most concerned about in Europe and in the industrial space. So if you have remote internet-facing you know, capabilities in your industrial environment, Parasite is definitely one to think through and consider protection against. So fascinating listening to you talking about it. Firstly, it's, it's sort of making me think what a interesting job you've got leaping oh. through all this data um another sort of consideration i had was i wonder how they name these groups how do they decide what to call themselves oh. variation so we 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 give them the names only because that makes it easy to, to, to it makes them referable is the only reason um right. and we chose and we chose the name set they're um they're actually rare earth minerals used in industrial processes uh, okay. and so that's that's our that's our naming set is uh, is that yeah, and it's interesting, like the way you describe them, it's like they've each got their own USP, their own sort of niche that they target in the area, just like legitimate organisations do, or the cybersecurity vendor community does. It's it's interesting, isn't it? It's like they're their own entities with their own business brains, just using them for, for evil rather than good. I mean, I would. I was a. I was an offensive operator, and I can tell you, I had PowerPoint presentations and Excel spreadsheets like everybody else did. So, <laughs> um, you know, it is. It is. It is both exciting and boring at the same time, just like any <laughs> other, uh, any other business, unfortunately. So, <laughs> um, any good news from the report, Sergio? Yes. Yeah, so, actually, interestingly, um, one of the things we found over the last year was that the number of organizations which have had industrial cybersecurity monitoring has gone up um, dramatically, actually. Um, and so, from uh, from 2000, uh, I'm sorry, 2020, we found uh, about half of industrial organizations were completely missing cybersecurity vulnerability inside their industrial operations. Um, this last year, we found that number had dropped to about 38%. Um, and so from our perspective, what we are very, very happy to say is that organizations have, most industrial organizations have started down the right path, which is just seeing what is happening. Um, and the answer is, is that these organizations are not yet, most orga industrial organizations are not yet in a position to prevent or even protect themselves against um, cyber threats. But what we're happy to report is that in most cases now, um, or if something happens, industrial organizations will at least have the data to find out what happened. Um, and that is, honestly, that's where everybody has to start. And so we're happy that people are moving down that path. And we continue to expect that that will continue to be a point of maturity for the next next um, you know many years well that's good and there's a nice peak on our roller coaster journey that we've been on <laughs> maybe that's a good place to end um is there anything else that you'd like to mention anything sort of particular that jumped out of you from the report that I haven't quizzed you on um no I think you've done a wonderful job you know I think that the big thing for me is you know that if you have listeners you know the first question uh, if if you if I could ask your listeners one thing it's that if they um, if you suspect that you have industrial operations in your organization, start asking the question, can we see what's going on? And if something happens, what are we going to do about it? Um, a lot of times, unfortunately, I still find organizations are, quote unquote, accidental 
uh, industrial cybersecurity people, um, meaning they have an industrial operation that they are probably responsible for helping to protect, but they don't even know that they have one. Um, and so if you suspect that your organization has an industrial operation, building management systems are very common. Um, of course, if you have manufacturing plants and so forth, but find out who is responsible for them and make sure that they are being responsible for them. Um, these are critical operations to business. And so don't don't let yourself be an accidental cybersecurity, industrial cybersecurity person, right? Be purposeful about it and just start going down that path. That's really great advice. And actually, we always like to end on something helpful. So when we're doing our podcasts or our articles, it's it's all about talking about the challenges and the threats and the scary stuff, but then also giving advice to our listeners or readers on how to cope with that. So really well done. Thank you so much for adding that in at the end. And Sergio, it's been a complete pleasure. What we'll do is we'll make the report available in the notes for this podcast. Um, all of our listeners are able to access the full report. But thank you so much for joining us today, Sergio. Oh, Eleanor, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was such an interesting chat with Sergio. And as promised, I will put a link to that report in the podcast notes because it is hot off the press and recently released. So do check that out if you want to know more details or more information around that report. Well, that's all we've got time for in this month's episode of the Into Security podcast, which has been a sombre but important instalment. And we'd just like to take this opportunity to say a, say a huge thank you to the episode sponsor, Dragos. We will be back in April with your monthly pod. But until then, thanks for listening. I've been Eleanor. I've been James. And I've been Benjamin. We'd like to thank Dragos for sponsoring today's podcast. Dragos is an industrial cybersecurity company on a mission to safeguard civilization from those trying to disrupt the industrial infrastructure that we depend on every day. Thanks for listening to Into Security. For in-depth interviews with the industry's finest minds, check out our sister podcast, Into Security Chats. Join us again next month. Until then, stay safe and keep up to date with everything you need to know about information security via the infosecurity-magazine.com website. <laughs>